Welcome to the Zealous Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Snyder. This week, I've got Brian Hill in the house. He is a physical therapist, CSCS, but we're not going to talk sports. We're talking mountain climbing to the extreme, guiding a blind Navy veteran to the summit of Mount Everest. Here we go. This week in Zealous, it's just going to be a little bit different. I do have somebody that is a physical therapist and CSCS, but The story is not around professional sports. It's going to be completely different. Brian Hill is with me today. And I got to say, the the first time I met Brian, he walked into my training facility at Pleasure Point in Santa Cruz and introduced himself. He had just come into town from Florida, and he had heard about these paddle and long-distance paddles that we had been a part of, that I had been a part of, where you paddle on a prone board, either on your belly or on your knees, just using your arms and go from Santa Cruz across Monterey Bay to Monterey, which is just shy of 30 miles. And so he wanted to learn more about it. And of course, now that I know this guy more, that's kind of like a warm up for him and what he does in his life. So we're going to talk all about it. Brian, welcome to Zealous. We're going to get underway. But just first, hey, thanks for being on. Hey, man, uh, thanks so much for having me on. You know, it's funny. I'm, I, I'm glad you remember that day because I definitely remember it as well. And uh, I'm pretty much an introverted guy. So it, it took a lot for me just to kind of step out and just, you know, come into town and just walk into your uh, into Rocky's uh, functional functional training. Or is it Rocky? It's Rocky we've training. changed it. Yeah, we've changed right, it so yeah, many yeah. times. We'll call it Rocky's. Uh, but, but yeah. yeah, I remember I remember walking in that day. That was probably about six years ago or so. And I'd heard about what you guys were doing with the crossing. And I was like, all right, I just got to get out there there and get get in with the right group of people so it's kind of funny to see where it's come across the last six years you know what if i had yeah. done it maybe uh, are you doing it this saturday because it's coming up uh this will be my first time in five five years i think that i haven't done it so i uh my my toe i had amputation on my toe from the story we're about to talk about and uh it's been five weeks since the surgery and my uh, my wound is still not closing so got a uh-huh. yeah so hopefully, uh, hopefully it closes soon. But yeah, I just can't get in the water, so no, uh, no, run the risk of infection or anything. Oh well, yeah, we won't talk about the swell that's hitting right now either, because oh, yeah. it'll just be rubbing salt in the wounds. But I mean, I do remember that first day we met, and then we started talking about the paddling, and and you know, it happens where people are whether they're surfers or they're stand-up paddlers or whatever, they hear about this event of paddling, you know, basically a, more than a marathon. And of course, any ocean shark infested. So I don't have to bring that up. But over the deep canyons and all that, it's pretty gnarly with the the, the way the weather can turn. But I, so I was kind of feeling you out at that moment going, OK, well, obviously, this guy looks fit. I mean, have you done any paddling? And, and you just casually mentioned, oh, yeah, I've done a, a paddle. Was it from the Bahamas to Florida? Yeah, yeah. The crossing for a cure. I, now it's called crossing for cystic fibrosis. Yeah, that's a. That's a big one too. You leave from Bimini and you paddle to, uh, I think it's Lake, Lake Worth, Florida. It's, uh, about 80 miles across the Gulf stream. And that's a wild one too. It's just, it's different. You know, it's a, it's obviously open water as you're, you start at around 1am and just paddle straight through the night. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's a big event, but there's, there's something about being out here on the Pacific and paddling over this 6,000 foot, you know, uh, bit of water beneath you and, knowing there's these large whales and uh, elephant seals and all these other things. It's a little bit different story out here. Yeah. And, and things with teeth, we won't even mention. Right. Definitely yeah. got bumped on more than one occasion. I just, yeah. just keep your head down and keep paddling. But uh, so what's great is that both events are fundraising. And so giving back to the community, helping those that are perhaps less fortunate or in situations such as families battling cystic fibrosis, both paddle events for those that are unaware are our fundraisers for different organizations helping support those with cystic fibrosis because we find that being by the ocean that salt water actually is is very beneficial for people with cf uh, and and this particular organization that's getting ready by the time this this podcast airs they will hopefully have already done the crossing on september 23rd saturday provided that the weather is right and conditions are good but uh, to date it's been over half a million dollars raised and started back in uh, what about five or six years ago. So pretty remarkable. Yeah. But you you take it even one step further. Like the, the uh, reason why 
I have you on, aside from you being just hard as nails and a go-getter and a total adventurer, is that you're, you formed Sightless Summits. You and yes. a buddy of yours formed this group to take a gentleman to the summit of Mount Everest this year. I want to know all about it. I mean, it's one yeah. thing to, to climb Everest, but it's another to guide a sightless individual up there. Uh, yeah. So how did this all begin? Um, well, so I was in Nepal in 2021 uh, doing photos for, uh, for a friend of mine. He, he was going with his family. He was going to climb Everest that year, and his whole family was going to go along with him to base camp. And he had asked that I come along and do photography, you know, just for the trip along the way, just so they can have memories. And, uh, and uh, this, so this is my partner now, Michael. Um, Michael uh, climbed Everest that year and uh, is really just kind of a, a badass, you know, <laughs> does, does, he retired at 38 and has, you know, climbed most of the major peaks in the world and uh, has you know, a big rock climber. And uh, he's, he's uh, biking from Portland, Oregon, down to, uh, down to Punta Arenas and in, uh, in Southern South America. So just kind of in segments, but just the uh, same thing. He just, he just likes to kind of live outside the box and uh, do some pretty wild things. But anyways, him and I were, were at base camp and uh, he had met Lonnie on Aconcagua, which is the tallest mountain in the Southern uh, area in uh, South America. And uh, we were sitting there at base camp and he's like, oh, I think we need to, we need to ask Lonnie. Maybe Lonnie would want to come and uh, and climb Everest. And uh, I, I was like, yeah, we should definitely do that. You know, uh, not thinking. <laughs> yeah, or anything. Yeah. So uh, I can't remember if we called or we texted, but either way, we reached out to Lonnie from base camp. And within within just a few minutes, we get we get a message back. And Lonnie's like, I'm in. You know, we'd ask him, hey, do you want to climb Everest? He's like, yes. And it, it just so turns out Lonnie is a part of something called the Blinded Veterans Association. It's a nonprofit that um, does a lot of good work for blinded veterans. And uh, and basically they had come to him a couple of days prior to us asking him that. And they said, uh, Lonnie, is there any way like anything you can think of that you can do that can help to expand our outreach? And uh, And so we had reached out to him two days later and he was like, he doesn't even really like climbing, but he was like, this is it. <laughs> this is it. So it's funny because he, he's a big whitewater kayaker. Just imagine completely blind, but loves. Wow. Uh, but yeah, you know, this opportunity presented itself and that's just kind of how the whole thing formed. And that's just the kind of guy Lonnie is too. He's just like anything he can do to help raise awareness for the, the blinded community and uh, is, is he's in for. Okay, just for the record, none of you were under the influence of any substances <laughs> or liquids. No, no, no. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, okay, so what was the date that the concept came up to the the time that you actually summited? So it, that was, it must have been April of 2021. And so we had, um, you know, we'd thrown out, obviously, let's just go straight for Everest. Uh, you know, why not? And, uh, but then we were like, we kind of took a step back. We're like, okay, we need to just try this out, see how it goes. So we put uh, Denali on the calendar, um, in which Denali is arguably one of the toughest of the seven summits. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's very challenging, not much support. Uh, 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 you don't have Sherpas, you don't have porters, none of that. It's just you're, you're carrying loads forward, dropping them, coming back. I mean, it's much, much, uh, I don't say more challenging, uh, but. Uh, so we decided to do that, and we did that in 2022, and uh, you know, thankfully, say we made it up to the to the top, and we did it in pretty good time. And you know, we were wondering, you know, how fast are we going to be able to move with Lonnie? You know, is it going to go a lot slower, or what's it going to look like? And it turns out, we we ended up do, doing it in 11 days, uh, Denali, and it's typically. It really just depends on weather Denali does, but it's typically like a 14 to like a 20 day trip, uh, roughly. I mean, wow. a lot of people get stuck in their tents for days at a time just because the weather in Denali is, is so bad. But but that mountain just kind of showed us, hey, we can we can really move. We can move OK with Lonnie. You know, it's not um, not going to be too bad. And uh, and yeah, so that kind of pushed us on to to Everest. And and ultimately we're, we're do we did Everest. But the whole goal of, of Silas Summits is to do something called the Explorer's Grand Slam. So it's um, it's the tallest mountain on every continent. And then it's skiing to the North Pole and skiing to the South Pole. Oh, oh, just just those things. That's it. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh just, my just, God. Just, just those things, yeah. So yeah. seven, well, six peaks, uh, or are you also so that, climbing the highest peak in Antarctica? So that, all right, so that is what we're fundraising for right now. It's kind of coming down to the line. We have to actually have the money by September 23rd. And we we got to have about another about seventy five thousand dollars. So it, it is not looking likely that we're going to be able to go this year to Antarctica. Um, <clears throat> but there's there's a lot of other things we we can we can do next year, and then we'll just go one year later. So, all right, for the listening audience, you know, of course, this is airing after the twenty third. But if you've got some deep pockets or know somebody that does and wants to contribute, we'll put the the links in the description below. Okay, so back to Everest uh, or Denali. First, w w obviously, it was summertime that you went up to Alaska and did Denali? Yes, yeah, that was June, June of 2022, yes. Favorable conditions, Lonnie's yeah. cranking up there. Um, and, yeah. and comparatively to your, your skill and your pace, was it pretty comparable in terms of Lonnie's ability or you just have to kind of ease back, yeah. touch so it down it, a little it, bit? It depends, uh, like um, on the terrain, obviously, like when you fly in um, to the Hiltner Glacier in Denali, you, you land uh, and, and you're basically on um, just, you know, wide open snowy terrain. It's, it's all uh, crevasses everywhere. It's glaciated. So uh, but but it looks like a nice just kind of you know football field. You can just walk across and, you know, you never know if it's an inch of ice you're walking on. But but that kind of terrain, Lonnie can just Lonnie can go, you know, he'll. He'll um, won't even hold on to anything. He'll just ask for you to kind of walk uh, heavy so he can get a good idea of what the terrain is like. Is it is it hard packed snow? Is it icy? Is it soft snow? And that gives him a lot of information as far as uh, how he should step forward. So basically, he'll you'll get in a line. He'll get behind you and he'll just follow along. So on that kind of terrain, he flies. Uh, when you get a little bit more uh, technical, like. Um, on Denali, there's the, the it's called the Headwall above 14 Camp, and then something called 16 Ridge, uh, a little bit more hairy. You know, there's a drop off on both sides. Uh, the Headwall, a little bit more technical. You got to put your feet in specific places. That that area, um, it, we move a little bit slower for sure. But for the most I would part, imagine for the most part though, he he can go. <laughs> so, so Brian, there's there aren't too many mountains in Florida as as far as my. <laughs> geography recollection uh, yeah. goes so what what kind of experience have you had with mountaineering mountain climbing yeah so i grew up um so i grew up in tennessee uh and tennessee uh, kind of right on in knoxville right on the great smoky mountains um you know there's there's mountains there it's uh, it doesn't look anything like the sierras nothing like the rocky mountains um so i, I did a, a little bit of rock climbing when i was younger but a ton of backpacking uh, but obviously nothing that really got me into uh, you know, high Himalayan peaks or anything like in the Rockies. Uh, and then obviously went to PT school in Florida. Yeah, there's not really, they have mountain biking there, which is hysterical, but, <laughs> but it's actually, actually some really great mountain biking in central Florida. If you didn't know that it's, it's really fun, but, uh, I did so not know that my, uh, my climbing, um, and mountaineering kind of came about when I, whenever I moved out to California. So I guess that was probably, um, probably about seven or eight years ago. Um, you know, I moved out and I was like, oh, I want to do, uh, let's go climb Mount Whitney. So we, uh, we ended up going to Whitney and I failed horribly. Absolutely horrible. Oh, really? I, yeah, I, well, so I had been in, in Bali for two weeks prior to that and I had just been surfing and not really doing much of anything. Uh, and then I fly back to LAX. My buddy picks me up and we go straight up to, to Mount Whitney, the highest, tallest tallest mountain in the lower 48 and you know i'd been sitting at sea level for a couple of weeks i'd just flown in and then i just remember uh, that trip i was like wow maybe this isn't for me you know i got altitude sickness i couldn't figure out how to put on my crampons none of that but uh <laughs> i guess and whitney's how... like 14 and a half thousand somewhere around there right yeah yeah exactly yeah i think yeah. it's like 14 14 five or so okay so then later i'm imagining i, I'm, I may be wrong but you do the the biathlon to Whitney from Death Valley. Have you done mm -hmm. that? Where you bike from Death Valley and then summit? Yeah. And so now. Of course you I, did. I, of course. Yeah. Now I've climbed Whitney uh, probably six or seven times, I guess. But yeah, that, that time you're talking about, we uh, we did the kind of the famous Badwater uh, Ultra, that they, the, the run, which is, I, I'd like to try that at some point, but that's pretty insane. So they, oh. it's about 135 miles running from uh, Badwater Basin, lowest point in the lower 48 to 
uh, to the, actually the Whitney portal, uh, the uh, the fit official race ends. But I think some people will kind of keep going to try to hit the lower, lower or the highest point in the lower 48. And uh, so, yeah, we did that. We but we biked it. We didn't we didn't run it. So we biked that. And then we uh, went up and um, put our own little spin on it. So instead of doing the trail and, and running up the side, we uh, rock climbed the front face of Whitney. So uh, did the East Buttress which is nothing really tight. It's, it's five, five, nine moves are the hardest moves you do, but yeah, really five, 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 seven. Hey, you free climbs. Uh, no, <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh. yeah, we didn't, we oh, didn't, you disappoint me. Yeah, we did. We didn't free solo. Yeah. No. <laughs> but, oh my gosh. That is okay. Yeah. Well, I guess your resume is adding up right now and, and uh, the listening audience is going, wow, he's certifiable. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> But man, wow, that is an experience. Okay, so obviously you you really trained hard and you trained well. And now it's time to, it's 2023 and it's time to head to India. Uh, and, and instead of just flying to Nepali border or into Kathmandu or wherever the case may be, you you just had to put your own twist on that too. So that actually was born from the the Lota High. It's called the Lota High here in the states from Badwater Basin to Mount Whitney. I did that with my friend Michael, who is the guy that started. We started Silent Summits, and then also is the one that I did the Sea to Summit. So from the Indian Ocean to the top of Mount Everest. So Michael had climbed Everest before, and you know he just he was just saying, okay, so I'm going to climb Everest again. What can we do that's going to be a little bit different? And, you know, I was just like, oh, why don't we just bike there from the ocean? You know, I was kind of throwing it out there, just got, you know, just brainstorming some things. And you know, a yeah. lot of you, you throw stuff like this out to and there's like, no, that's ridiculous. But then you, it, you know, your friends are good friends when they're just like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the wheels just started spinning and uh, logistically, I mean, it was it was a big ordeal to kind of get everything set up to do it. But uh, yeah, so ultimately the idea was born uh, to, we called it a sea to summit. So, um, so biking from the Indian ocean through Eastern India to the base of Mount Everest and then climbing to the tallest point in the world. So. And how many miles are we talking from, from sea to like to the Nepali border? To the Nepali border uh, was, I think the Nepali border was about 500, 500, 550 miles or so. The actual, the ride is not that long. When you look at like touring, you know, guys, you know, ride across the U.S., ride from North America to South America. I mean, uh, ultimately the ride is 700 miles. It's, it seems that like a long time, but it's really not that far. Uh, uh, it was uh, over the course of 12 days and uh, the ride through India was flat as can be. There, uh, we were there during monsoon season, but it was flat as can be. I mean, we'd, we'd run into some rain and everything, but uh, the part through India was kind of, relaxing it was just every day we'd ride you know 70 to 100 miles or so and it's kind of just that's what we did you just woke up you go ride you stop for lunch you keep riding but i imagine there weren't too many asphalt roadways it's probably all just really tamped down dirt or am i wrong the roads in india were so nice we really? we, we, could, we couldn't believe it we couldn't believe it there was one section of about 40 miles that was just horrible roads that you would think of just all uh dirt and uh and, you know and wet and but yeah for the most part uh the roads were, were very nice and we weren't uh, in uh you know very urban areas we we tried to pick the most rural areas we could ride through uh honestly to try to avoid traffic because india is so populated and traffic there <sighs> I, I remember yeah. we, we we landed in kolkata with our bikes we, we put them together in the airport and imagine that scene you know to two white guys here, you know, and we're just like putting like these crazy bikes. And we had a whole mob of people all around watching what we were doing. But I remember riding out of the airport into the traffic and I was like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> like, wow. there's no order. It's just go do whatever you want. You know, cars going every which way, mopeds. It's just, it's, it's pretty crazy. Well, then I imagine you get out to the rural area and the mobs that met you at the airport aren't going to be much different than these villages. You must have been received pretty well or like aliens from another planet. What was that like? Alien, aliens from another planet. That's uh, that's 100%. I, I, I've never, ever uh, had the feeling what it would be like to be famous or a movie star or anything like that. And, and I definitely felt it there. I mean, we it was it was really amazing. I mean, we we did not see one other white person throughout all of India the entire time 
after we left the airport and we didn't see one other white person. It was really, uh, really um, uh, cool to be the minority and just kind of uh, see see the flip of that. Uh, most people, we didn't meet many people that spoke English at all. Uh, uh, but I tell you what, though, I mean, there was probably there were three specific times I thought I thought I was about to get mugged. We'd just be riding along. And a car would pull up to us and and push me off the side of the road, like you know. And two guys got off and they ran ran around to me and they they hold up their phone. They're like selfie, selfie, selfie. This happened more than once. And we 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 rode up to one where the, uh, they built a barrier. They they put their arms together across the road so we couldn't ride through because they wanted to get photos with with us. It was it was such a such a surreal thing. It was really wow. really interesting. And uh, yeah, I guess you know, especially being in more rural areas. I mean. I, Maybe they hadn't seen many white people before or, or any at all, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, Lonnie wasn't riding with you. It was just you and Mike, right? No, we wanted to get, we wanted to get Lonnie, but he, he has done tandem biking before, and he was just saying, eh, probably not the best idea, because when, uh, through India, it was flat, but it's a different story when you get to the foothills of the Himalayas. That's a, it gets real at that point. But, uh, yeah, but I tell you what, the India ride, though, was really interesting. We, I'm talking about how we, we plotted it to be in rural areas. But there was one day uh, I haven't really uh, brought this story up. And I ended up telling my mom much later, but definitely not while I was on the trip. But we, we were in this beautiful rural area through the middle of nowhere, like just probably my favorite riding day. Just this nice and warm and just, you know, uh, just plains and just it, it's actually a nice uh, a nice uh, paved road out in the middle of nowhere i was so surprised and uh and near the end of the day this car pulls up behind us and uh they actually speak english and turns out they're they're missionaries and uh they they were like hey uh can we take you guys to dinner and I'm like oh sure yeah sounds good uh, it'll be a good cultural experience they were they were from this town called dumka in india and uh so we, we go, to, go to the hotel, they pick us up, we go out to dinner, and you could tell that they wanted to tell us something. You know, something, something, they, they, they felt something, like something was wrong. And uh, I'll never forget this. The, uh, the father was just like, the only reason that you're sitting with us right now is because God was with you today. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so when you, when you plan your route through India, you, you think about, okay, let's, where are the nice roads? You know, how do we stay away from cars? You don't really plan thinking about extremist groups <laughs> so oh so yeah that's that's low on the list for sure when so i travel i i had didn't even think about it but the, this these people we were having dinner with they said you rode directly through like this hot spot of this i guess it's they're called maoist uh, m-a-o-i-s-t uh naxalite group it's like a communist party of india trying to overthrow the government there uh and I guess we had ridden directly through their little village and uh, like the area that they're in. And these, these people like there's, I cannot believe that you weren't one killed, two uh, taken and, and held for ransom, something that I, I just can't believe it. And, and I was just like, Oh my gosh, what in the world? <laughs> so oh. at that point we still had another, um, geez, another hundred mile, uh, another hundred miles to get out of India. And uh, for me, it, it's, it's interesting. Before that, I was waving at everybody. Hey, hey, how's it going? You know, soup. But after that, man, I, I was I had my head down, just like <laughs> not really talking to many people, just, you know. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. my gosh. So that, that was interesting. That was uh, mm -hmm. that definitely was a bit of a scare. And and I know I told you, but uh, we finally got to the Indian border where we were going to get out of the country. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. This is what I want to hear about, too. Uh, where we get to finally get to leave. All I wanted to do was get out of India at that point. Right? I just figured somebody was going to grab the two white guys in spandex and, you know, uh, hold us for ransom, you know? And, uh, well, maybe they left you alone because of the spandex. The you you got to consider that. But anyway. Uh, so we show up to the Indian border and, uh, and they don't speak any English whatsoever. We just hand them our passport and they're like, no, we're, we're just like, what do you mean? No. Like, and then they won't hand us our passports back and they just take us and they put us behind, um, their, their stand there. And they're like, just stay here. About two hours later, the, uh, the local military commander shows up. He speaks English, really nice guy. And he was just like, uh, you know, obviously grilling us everything. You know, show me your, show me your flights in, show me, you know, everything about your passports. And to ask, he asked like our whole history from the previous three months, what we've been doing. Um, 
turns out we were riding through a militarized zone. And it turns out it was a militarized zone because they were uh, at war against these Maoist people. So they were trying to get their land back from the Maoist people. So he did confirm. He was like, yeah, I can't believe you guys weren't nabbed. This was the military commander. He said, he said, quote, unquote, I'm, I can't believe you guys weren't nabbed. <laughs> so but, uh, anyway, so, so I think we should put a little email out to Google when it comes to like maps and navigation, they should probably <laughs> include insurgencies or revolutions right. in, exactly. in their map. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, my gosh. So then what happened? So then they, he didn't let us cross. Uh, I guess this was only a uh, border crossing for Nepali or Indian people. Uh, but he did, uh, they took us back. He said, Hey, you guys have to come to the military base with us. And we're just like, what? So they take us back to the military base. We spend about 10 hours there. And it's just the whole bureaucracy. This commander was talking to the higher up. He was talking to the higher up, just making sure that we were clear and good to go. Because they thought we were, we, it was espionage. They thought, they thought maybe we were, we were potential spies. I was like, we're just two guys out riding our bikes, you know? Like, this kind of, but they had to go through the whole, the whole bit and just make sure that we are who we say we are. And we're just, all we're trying to do is just ride our bikes to Mount Everest. And so ends up, they didn't let us cross there in the end. They were super nice to us at the military base. I mean, they gave us tea, food. I mean, they, they just had to go through their whole process and ended up we had to get a shuttle about um, it, it, the, it should have been an hour long drive, but it ended up being about five hours northwest to a different border. So that obviously added on quite a bit of uh, riding time for us. Uh, we obviously extended the bike ride just a little bit. But so Wow. Yeah, so that was that was it. Finally, finally got out of India the next day and into Nepal. And I, it, it was the the change as soon as you ride across the bridge. It is such a different world. Uh, uh, as far as um, the Indian people were extremely nice to us, but very, uh, they weren't shy. They people would would bombard us. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't uh, rare to have like 30, 40, 50 people all come up to you. If you ever, if you stop, if you, if you stop moving, they're going to start congregating around you. And then when you get into Nepal, it was very much respectful and just kind of, they would ask maybe to come up, but for the most part, would you, you were kind of free to, 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 you know, eat your lunch or whatever it might be. Like nobody would really, was really approach you, but. Wow. Okay. So that in itself is a lifetime adventure, but it continues on, right? You, you yeah. connect with Lonnie, and and then you start heading up to Base Camp One. I mean, there's several base camps for those that aren't familiar with Everest. I mean, you've got to acclimate yourself and and climatize yourself, get you to thinner and thinner regions. And this takes this right. takes weeks. I mean, so yeah, give us this, this the the story from that point. Yeah, so finally finished uh, the ride. Uh, we met up with a group of about 17 people. Uh, wow. which was really interesting. We, we had uh, invited along, like my parents came and my, you know, my girlfriend's uh, dad came. We, we had a bunch of, just a bunch of friends that wanted to do the trek to base camp. Uh, Cause that's a trip of a lifetime. It's amazing. If you, if you, if you're somewhat adventurous and uh, have any desire to, to see the Kumbu region, see the Himalayas, I would 100% recommend going to just do the trip to Everest base camp. Uh, it's, it's about a nine day trek in, you know, you, you walk, you know, not, not too far, maybe, five to eight miles a day um it, it's definitely a, a bit of a challenge because of the altitude you know you're you're starting out around nine thousand feet of lukla and then when you make it to base camp you're at seventeen thousand. so you know you're you're up there um but it's a really nice nice trip because you're staying in tea houses along the way and you get good food and just a good cultural experience and just absolutely incredible views but so that at, at that point the trip had really changed you know before it was just michael and i kind of in the wild and then you know, we get to Lukla, and from there forward, you have all these foreigners, all the trekkers, all the people going to climb Mount Everest, and it was just a completely different, different trip at that point. But uh, yeah, that's what that's when it all started. That's when we met Lonnie, and we took the, about nine days to get to base camp, and uh, just kind of slowly working our way up and staying in tea houses. Um, okay. Then, yeah. So you're then you make it up to base camp, and now. Oh, by the way, this is in, uh, was this April, May? When was this? This was April. So we met April, everybody yeah. April, April, April 6th. And I think every, all the trekkers were gone by April, I think, uh, 16th. Okay. So that, 
so April 16th, everybody's gone. Um, and so at that point, the real climbing begins, you know, all the trekkers leave, we're there and like, you're sitting at base camp, which is right at the, at the base of uh, Mount Everest, you know, you see the Kumbu Weissfall right in front of you and it's, it gets real, you know, it gets scary. I mean, that this year, um, the, there was a Nepali climbing team that every year there's a, a Nepali climbing team is kind of hired out to set the fixed lines to the summit. And it, really sad, but I mean, the season opened up this year with uh, three Sherpas getting killed in the icefall. You know, uh, it, it just kind of telling you, man, it is this is real. You know, like yeah. <laughs> we're in a we're in a place that's constantly changing, and it's uh, not the not a not an environment where humans should really be, and not really for that long. But uh, so yeah, that was that was around mid-April, and uh, we had to do uh, two rotations. So we climbed a mountain called Lobuchet, which is twenty thousand feet, and then. We also did a, a climatization to Camp Three, so we touched Camp Three without oxygen at twenty-three thousand feet, and then wow. came back came back to Everest Base Camp. So we were we were acclimated and ready to summit um, April April 29th, or the last last day in April. Um, so we're and ready the cool to go. thing is, like for the listening audience right now, I was able to follow along with your adventures because you did such a great job with social media and keeping everybody informed right from the the time you I, I have a vivid memory of photos of you in the airport putting your bikes together <laughs> and, and then your tra travails your your traverse all the way across India and now up there base camp it was such a joy and I gotta say Brian if you ever want to change careers you could be the Ansel Adams of the Himalayas your yeah. photography was is is amazing so yeah follow brian on social media i'll put the links again in the descriptions along with the fundraising uh, event that he's going through uh, the, the drive that's happening because those those photos are just sensational so what was it like to be at base three and, and without oxygen and just I, I imagine you're not moving a lot you're trying to just kind of lay low what was sleeping like what was there a lot of headaches what was it like uh, yeah, I, you know, I, fortunately I didn't really get a headache, uh, the whole time I, I had had, it was, it was a, definitely a challenge to touch camp three without oxygen, but I was for that day, for whatever reason, I was feeling pretty good. Um, nice. and what, what we had done for that rotation was we, we went to camp two and then just woke up and just went up. You're on the low T face at that point. It's like, I don't know, 5,000 foot, just, just sheet of ice essentially. And, uh, uh, camp three is just situated right kind of in the middle of that, of that face. But, um, you know, we made it up there, touched, uh, 23,000 feet and I was feeling good. Lonnie was not feeling good. And that was kind of like a, oh man, let's see how this, let's see how this goes. But, uh, yeah, if I put out a lot of videos for sightless summits and everything, but if, if you can kind of see Lonnie is the kind of guy, once you get to know him, he's not stopping. Like he, he is going to keep going. If you didn't know him, you'd be like, okay, oh, this guy's done for. There's, there's no way he's going to make it to the Everest summit, you know, but his drive to finish something, not for himself, it's not pride, but his drive to finish things because he knows that the impact that it has on other people with disabilities is, is uh, absolutely unreal. I mean, this is a country boy from Indiana. He, he you talk about training in Florida, wherever else he, he lives in Indiana. He's got like a, you know, uh, maybe a hundred foot hill outside. He'll just walk up and down it over and over, you know, he's, but he's a country boy. He's not, he's not your stereotypical athlete, you know, but he, uh, he has that, uh, that, that drive, that mental, mental drive just to keep going. Wow. Um, yeah. There's, there aren't too many people like that. Uh, yeah. but when you run into them, it, it, it's just amazing to, to just kind of almost kind of want to find out yeah. what, What's that all about? So, okay, so but, you go from base three, you're back down to base one, you're feeling yeah. at, um, you're feeling like you, you've got everything ready, and now it's just a waiting game for weather, isn't it? So, so that was the issue this year. It was, it was, it was wild. Uh, I talked about monsoon seasons in India, uh, and the, the monsoons in India are the reason that people are able to climb Everest in the month of May. So these these monsoons come in through the Indian Ocean and they bring in these high winds, big storms that push uh, the jet stream up higher, which lifts it off of uh, Everest. So ah. it's the monsoons that you want to uh, to open up climbing the climbing window uh, for Everest. Um, so, uh, yeah. So but the issue was this year weather was horrible. So we were ready to act on it or we were ready to, to summit by end of April. 
we didn't actually get to the, the route was not fixed. Nobody can climb to the summit until the route's fixed by that team that I was telling you about. Uh, the route wasn't fixed until I think May 14th of this year. So that left us, we were ready to go and we're just hung out at base camp for 15 days. 15 How days. many other groups were there? How many other people were waiting? Oh, I, I think there, there, uh, in, in our team, there was only six people, but I mean, uh, every space camp, it's like a, it's like a, small <laughs> it's, town. It's, it's, it's like a small town. It's a, it's a big production at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there, there's a lot of people. Um, so, so it opened May 14th and we had gotten wind that more than half of the people that had permits to climb this year were going to go. So we were like, you know what, let's, let's wait it out and let's hope there's another weather window. So the, all of these people went for the initial summit push uh, they left you know, May 14th. Some people summited on the 14th, but left on the first uh, weather window, May 14th. And we uh, ended up getting another one about three days later. Um, <clears throat> and it worked out really well because there's actually May 14th, the, the summit opened. May 29th, it closes. The icefall doctor stopped maintaining the icefall at that point. So that's 15 days that you have. And so that's we, it? That's it, yeah. So we let the, you know, we, we let the people go for the first, uh, first weather window. It's kind of um, risky because you, there may not be another weather window. And you don't get a refund. <laughs> so, it's, <laughs> you know, that was part of it. We, you know, we'd raise like $250,000 for this and, uh you know, it's a, just because the weather doesn't work out doesn't mean you get your money back. So we we were fortunate that there was another good weather window that opened up uh, a few days later. But but yeah, so then you would kind of ask, you know, what's it like uh, as far as sleeping and eating and everything. But, you know, we, we left for our summit push on the 16th and, uh, um, you know, base camp is very comfortable. I mean, you've got every individual has their own big box tent with a little foyer in it. There's, you know, like padded floors. I mean, it's very nice. There's espresso machines at camp. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you leave there, you get up to camp one, it's very rustic, just, a you know, tent and snow, uh, on a glacier. Um, and then camp two is actually pretty nice. We spent an extra night there. Uh, they had a, the actual, a cook tent there, you know, that all the Sherpas had, you know, they'd make us up some really good hot food, but above camp two, that's when it, things change. You know, you get to camp three, which is situated right on the Losi face. And I'm talking like it, it is right on the side of the Losi face. I mean, when you step out of your tent, watch your feet, because if you, if you trip whatsoever, you're, straight down the side of the Lotsi Bay. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Um, and then Camp 3, head up to Camp 4, you get to the South Coal, and you sleep there. You you, you essentially, you, you get to the Camp 4, and you just lay there with your eyes open. You know, the wind's ripping. It's just, you're at, you're at 20, so you're in the death zone now. Your you're heart's racing, anticipating the, your summit push for the next few hours. So you essentially, you just lay there and rest for about five hours. And Camp three to camp four is no joke. I mean, it's, it's a hard day. And we ended up getting up, uh, up to camp four around, I think pretty late around six or 6 PM or so. And then we left for our summit push for Everest, uh, uh, 1 AM. So we just, we just laid in our tents. You just lay there. You don't get to really rest. You know, they feed you some, some lentils and some rice and you <clears throat> next thing you know, you're up and at it again. I mean, it's, uh, I will say, you know, there, any, anybody can climb Everest, it's a, you don't have to have technical skills. You just literally put in a cinder on a fixed line and just work your way up. But I will say you have to, you've got to be able to push yourself because it, uh, it physically, it's extremely demanding. I mean, there's just well, no stop. There's no, there's not much rest. And then with lack of sleep, there's often hallucinage, uh, hallucinations that occur, right? So what was that? Did you, did you encounter that? Uh, I did. I, no, I didn't. I didn't. Um, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any issues uh, with that. Uh, I, I take, um, diphenhydramine, uh, every day, probably not good for me, but I'll take, I'll take a, like Z-Quil, basically just Benadryl. Uh, I take it. it just every night, uh, just to try to knock me out so I can get some, some rest. But yeah, you know, we woke up for summit push, um, you know, 1am we start walking out of camp and I'll tell you what, you're, you're five minutes walk out of camp and dead body is just laying right on the side of the trail that's a, that's a good way to get you get yourself started for that day <laughs> oh my gosh it's uh it's like i said it's it's very real i mean people push themselves to the absolute end and i think that you know they push themselves so hard 
and they think when they stop they're going to be able to recover but you know 26 28,000 feet 29,000 feet it, your body just can't recover you know and you see these people out there they've paid all this money they've they've worked so hard to get to this point and they just uh, they'll push themselves to the ultimate red line and can't go any further but then their bodies just don't recover and so am, am i right in understanding you you weren't using oxygen to summit oh no i use oxygen I use oh oxygen. okay yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I use oxygen and uh, you know maybe if i was going back maybe i would try without oxygen but i don't know maybe i don't really i don't really care to say oh i did it without oxygen uh, for this year especially though like with Lonnie, it's like the ultimate goal is like, let's get Lonnie to the top and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to, to help assist in that. So without not using oxygen probably would have, you know, that, that, it could have knocked me out and then I can't even help Lonnie out. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you began your summit at 1am. What time did you actually reach it? Uh, so I talked about how we move pretty fast generally. This was a slow day. This was really it slow. Was. Most most people get to uh, summit um, around sunrise, and you'll see this like really cool uh, shadow of Mount Everest in the valley. Uh, we summited around four thirty p.m. Uh, it was actually rather scary. Uh, we're we're going up, uh, and people are like, "Are you guys still going up, or why are you not turning around and going down?" And we're like, oh, this is what I got. So uh, pretty much every day uh, you wake up and it's a nice, beautiful morning, clear, light winds. By the afternoons, the storms come in. Uh, and so that's where, you know, that's why people try to leave early in the morning, get up there, summit, and get back down. So, you know, we, we, were just, we just had to slowly make our way and go as, as fast as we could, but in a safe way. And, yeah, it was about 4, it was just after 4 p.m. that we actually summited. And I remember that. Uh, that's that's the first time I got a little bit scared. I was like, this is kind of like a this is kind of like a horror movie, you know. Like you you've seen all these bad things that happen on Everest, you know. Uh, I was, uh, it was just it was just pouring snow. It, it, the wind was ripping. Uh, you know, we couldn't see anything from the summit, uh, which was kind of fitting that we were with a, a blind sightless. Yeah, which was kind of cool in some ways because it's like, hey, it's it's not about what we can see here. It's about the significance of getting this man here, you know, and like what that means to other people, you know. Uh, so that was that was kind of cool. I, but uh, yeah, it was it was scary because like, man, we got we have a long ways to go. And I remember heading back down, um, got to the South Summit, and at that, about that point, it was it was getting dark, you know. And we're just like, man, we got we had the whole um, called the triangular phase. Um, we still had to descend 3,000 feet of fixed lines to get down. And, man, that was a little bit eerie. I had seen uh, a guy on the south summit as we were going up sitting there just really tired. By the time we had made it back and going down, the Sherpas were just lowering his body back down the side of the mountain. I mean, it was a, it was like all these things were coming together. Um, I had mentioned I had my, my toe amputated, my, my right foot at that time by the time we got – south summit back down to something called the balcony at twenty-seven thousand feet my right foot was just it was just throbbing it was hurting so bad it was it was pitch black outside it was getting colder the wind was ripping and man i was just like oh, uh, <laughs> i hope to god i you know we i could make it back to the south coal and, and be okay you know <laughs> oh my gosh it was it was pretty pretty wild pretty scary but obviously you did you made it back yeah there's a little surgery yeah. on that toe of yours but yeah you know i i took a glimpse of it last week or the week before and it looks like it's doing it's, pretty well maybe it's not it's, fully healed but it's doing well it's, it. it's i still have it yeah i still have it and it literally i mean it was not even not even it's it's basically just the end of my toe is was, was chopped you know it, it just turned into dry gangrene and it just obviously wasn't coming back so um so yeah i uh, I had it uh, taken off, but it's it didn't doesn't really affect my function much. I mean, I uh, I've been jogging, I've been playing golf, I've been you know weightlifting, all this kind of fun stuff. But maybe that's why it hasn't quite healed yet. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's, that, you know what's wild is this entire episode we really haven't talked about conditioning or, or rehab or anything right. else. But uh, yeah. uh, for obvious reasons, this is just an amazing story. I'm just thrilled to call you a friend and have you uh, share this here. So, okay, it, seven continents, South Pole, maybe out for right now because deadlines uh, really looming in the next few days. So let's just yeah. put that off to next year or whatever. How many other summits, how many other continents uh, do you need to check off your list? 
And is Lonnie so, going to be accompanying you or you have other so, people that might join you? Uh, so it'll just be uh, Lonnie and Michael and I. And so Lonnie, before I'd met him, had already done Aconcagua and also Kilimanjaro. So he's knocked yeah. out four of them. He's got to do Mount Elbrus in Russia. Um, it's closed right now, but there's rumors that, you know, next next uh, year you can go to Russia and climb Elbrus. Uh, it's a quick mountain. You do it in two or three days. So you actually, on the north side of Elbrus, you can take a snowcat up and just walk the rest. It's it's nothing really technical. Actually, that's What's the, the highest side. And what's the highest in Australia? So Australia is a it's a pretty small uh, mountain, and so it it depends on who you talk to as far as the seven summits go. But most people would recognize uh, Karsten's Pyramid as the seventh. Uh, so it's not actually in Australia; it's a part of Papua New Guinea. Oh, okay. So so it depends on who you talk to. Some people say, "Oh, you got to go do the one in Australia," but it's it's like a like a hike you know uh so the one, <laughs> the, one in, uh, the one in Papua New Guinea I, I want to say I I don't know I, it's it's maybe 16,000 feet it's not that high and it's uh, more of a more of a rock climb than anything do uh, you have any of these on your calendar yeah so we we just now we're kind of figuring out that hey we're probably not going to be, be able to do Antarctica so uh, I actually need to have a phone call with Lonnie and kind of talk that out. But uh, it turns out next uh, summer they they are going to do a trip to the North Pole. So that yeah. might be something. We might do the North Pole. Um, Karsten's Pyramid has been closed for a long time due to tribal issues uh, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, so that's been closed for like two years now. So there's not really much left that we can actually do. Um, we did completely shift gears. We've just been throwing around the idea of getting Lonnie to um, climb. It's called the regular route on Half Dome. Uh, so it's the kind of the northwest face uh, of, uh, mm-hmm. of Half Dome, about 23 pitches, and no blind person has done it, and he's really wanted to do it. So there's there's some talk that maybe we'll try to get that knocked out here uh, here soon. Uh, wow, and that gets up to like a 510 or what? Yeah, uh, it depends on my route. I think um, I, you know I, I wouldn't lead it. Uh, I it might even have to eight pump some of it, but uh, I think I think 510 a move. So nothing, yeah. nothing too bad, but yeah. Ooh, still uh, pretty technical. But yeah, then so, again, so. you know, you don't have to, if you're, if you are visually impaired, uh, that, that feeling of looking down necessarily <laughs> yeah. uh, it isn't going right. to be there. But with the North yeah. Pole though, I'm curious, like, do you, are you starting to sketch out? Like, where would you, uh, would you enter it from? Canada, or did you enter it from a different area? I actually don't know that much about the North Pole. That's probably the the one that I've looked at the least. Uh, uh-huh. But it's a uh, uh, we're in good hands. We work with a guy named Ryan Waters. He owns um, a company called Mountain Professionals, and Ryan is uh, one of uh, it's less than ten people in the world that's ever done the Explorer's Grand Slam. But he's done it completely unsupported. So he was the last person that did the North Pole uh, completely unsupported. Some, some crazy distance and and he was pulling it was him and a friend eric larson and i think they, they were pulling like 150 pound sleds uh just to make it through there's actually a really good uh animal planet did something it's called melting the last race to the pole it's a two-part series and it's done really well on ryan and uh and his buddy eric but so he's he's the one that's kind of setting all this stuff up for us anyway so so he's got uh he's got us covered on that but yeah, sounds like you're surrounded by a really solid team. So yeah. for, for a listening audience that wants to get more in-depth information or just see those amazing photos of your journey to Everest, like what, what's social media, where can they go? And then also, if you've got yourself some type of fundraising website where people can contribute to, to the South yeah. Pole, how do they do it? So, um, so for one, uh, all donations are tax deductible as we work with the Blinded Veterans Association. Uh, 5% of all donations go to the BVA to help with outings for blinded veterans to go to thing, like, uh, things that Lonnie does, get out to kayak or get out to rock climb. They go turkey hunting. It's, uh, all these things that you're like, wow, I can't believe a blind person does that, but they do it. And it's, it's amazing to see. Uh, so uh, yeah, everything's tax deductible. Um, 
donations could be made through our website. It's www.sitelesssummits.com. And that just gives a lot more information on uh, what we're all about. There's, there's a lot of videos. I've made a few videos, um, especially from Everest that are on there. So if you want to watch, you know, from our base camp to summit push and all that, that's, that's available there. Uh, but tell us just a little bit more about Sightless Summits. And, you know, ultimately our, our mission is to help inspire others with disabilities just to continue pushing the boundaries of life. Like Lonnie, you know, Lonnie, most people would say he, he, he this is a blind man. There's no, he can't be on top of Mount Everest. He was on top of Mount Everest and it happened, you know, so, so the body is so incredibly adaptable and we're able to do so much more than we think we can if we just kind of push at it. So, so our goal is to help inspire other people to do that. So yeah, if you, if you, uh, you know, like what we're doing, then yeah, we'd really appreciate it. Cause everything is, is, you know, kind of, uh, self-funded. We're, we're trying to just raise money for everything, but, uh, yeah. So sightless summits, sightless summits on Instagram, uh, and Facebook. And then yeah, for like my photography, I don't have a website or anything. I'm just kind of an amateur, but yeah, you mentioned Ansel Adams. He's definitely, uh, somebody I, I looked up to. Um, but yeah, some, you could find some of my photos on Instagram and it's at at B Hill 117. So got a lot of, I'll uh, put those in there. And then, uh, well, this next year, if you're not summiting or heading somewhere completely outrageous during the months of April and May, cause this year, while you were summiting, we were a little bit more tame, but we were doing the ride away program, which I don't know if you've ever, have you ever come down and ride away before? I don't know. I, I know right. I haven't, I've heard of it. Well, yeah. We get uh, the School for the Blinds, uh, Burn Foundations, children mm -hmm. primarily with, with learning disabilities, neurological deficits or whatever. We take them for a day at the beach where we take them surfing, tandem surfing and, and kayaking and boogie boarding. So, you know, uh, heck, if you and Lonnie find yourself in yeah. sticking around Santa Cruz or whatever during the months of April and May next year, we'll, we'll be at Cowles. This was our 25th year of doing it. So it's oh, kind wow. of a nice thing to get back into it after COVID. But I mean, it's not climbing Everest, but but yeah. dropping in on a nice it's, little it's, wave with somebody yeah. is sure fun. I tell you, there's a yeah, different for Everest for everybody, you know, it's like it doesn't have to look like just climbing a big mountain. So, uh, yeah, uh, pretty, pretty epic <sighs> stuff. But Brian, I can't thank you enough. I mean, sharing the story, I've heard snippets, but to, to get the full on lowdown of, of what transpired, man, you're, yeah. you're one of my heroes and I'm so glad to know you and, and I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing with Lonnie and, and Mike and the rest of the gang and I wish you nothing but the best. Yeah, thanks, Rocky. Really appreciate having me on. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Zealous Podcast. I want to thank Brian Hill and Sightless Summits for coming on and sharing what an amazing journey that he just got through and the excitement for what's to come. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Rocky underscore Snyder. You can always catch us online, zealouspodcast.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week.